morning as I read from God's Word, the book of Revelation, chapter 1, the longest reading to date, verses 12 through 20. It is here that we will focus our attention this morning and ask by God's help that He might reveal Himself in salvation to His servants. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, one like a son of man. I'm sorry, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, or take comfort. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." Thus far, the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we come before you this morning and we ask that we might be given ears to hear the words of the first and the last. The words of the one who though died is the resurrected one. And as the one who is raised in this world, you are king of this world. And so you give freely life. It is yours to give, it is yours to withhold, but this morning, Lord, we ask that you might give it abundant, flowing free from your hands that were pierced and the blood that flowed from your side. O Lord, even now by your Spirit, wash us with that holy water Consecrate us for works of deeds and love that you might be glorified in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've said it before and I'll say it. Uh, There are just some texts that you just need to read and then let it sit. This is a, a tuning of the pitchfork and you strike it and it just causes a a melodic sound to fill the room. John beholds the one who though died has been raised again and in his beholding Christ Jesus, the one who walks amongst the lampstands. We need to handle texts like this with fear and trembling. I said in my email to you, it comes like a hot iron to the touch. 
like a blazing fire. It calls you to come closer, but you must be careful. This is not unlike the call that the voice out of the burning bush there in the wilderness, Moses approached, and out of that bush, Christ, the presence of God who filled that bush, though burning, was not burned up. A picture of his consecrating presence said, Moses, do not come closer, but take off your shoes, for the ground upon which you are standing is holy. In our confession, we read of the distinction between the administration of the Old and New Covenant. And this is an important administration to us when we are surrounded by people who want to build transcendental places in worship and they'll light candles and they'll put in sort of mood music and they'll do all of these things because they're trying to replace that Old Testament smells and bells, Old Covenant administration in the New Covenant. But when we look in the Confession, this is what we read. Greater outward glory, lesser inward glory. New Covenant, lesser outward glory, but greater inward glory. There is glory here. And the reason we know it, and the way that we know it, is because of texts like Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. This is the state of affairs in the church today. Jesus didn't get dressed up for this moment and then get back into his sweats after John saw him. This is Jesus in his perpetual state of exalted kingship now and forevermore. And this is Christ today. So, get dressed. As he says, gird your loins and prepare to sit in the presence of Almighty God. There's three points that I want to make this morning. As we behold the Redeemer through the words spoken to us by himself, recorded by our brother, Apostle John. Three points. Number one, a vision of the exalted Christ. Number two, the response of the apostles. And then number three, the revelation of Christ's intentions. A vision of the exalted Christ, the response of the apostle, and then lastly, the revelation of Christ's intentions. Let's look at the first point. A vision of the exalted Christ. In summary, John says, his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. John was bowled over to see him. And when John turns, having heard the voice of Jesus, the transcendent Redeemer, the King of heaven and earth, he sees one walking amidst the churches. It is a picture, it is a symbol of Christ's eternal past, present, and future presence among all the churches. Not just the seven to whom John is writing, but this letter was not just a letter written to one of those seven, but to all of the seven and to all of the churches that would come. This is our letter to Reformation OPC in Gastonia, North Carolina. This is your Redeemer. His head and hair were like white wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. John sees Christ. His head and hair 
were white. What does this symbolize? The purity and the wisdom of our great King of heaven and earth. It shows His splendor and His everlasting majesty. Now, in our culture, white hair is something to be shunned. Why? Because we despise age. You're not fooling anyone. <laughs> in fact, gray hair, white hair, is always in the Old Testament. And not just that, baldness too. Majesty, wisdom, power. We need to look at the white-haired one and say, that person has something to say that I don't know. That's why you say to your children, I'm naming these after you. <laughs> it shows experience. It shows holiness. He is the only wise, pure, almighty God. And it is His radiant face and His radiant hair and His eyes that burn that fill the entire city of God with light. His head, His face, His hair, all burning with the radiant holiness of His exalted state. And not just His head and face, but John also describes His feet and His hands. His feet, he says, were like brass, like burnished brass. Burnished brass is not brass that's been sitting and slowly sort of growing dull. Burnished brass is polished to a high sheen. And in his hand, there are seven stars. Now, we'll get to the stars in a moment. But also in the throne room, in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 7, we read of the cherubim, whose feet were also like burnished brass. It speaks of the holiness of the room, the, the exalted royal room in which Christ is. And all of this takes place in the majestic court of the king. It speaks of his holiness, his power, that Christ himself was obedient even unto death and was exalted to the place that highest and most holy place, from humiliation to exaltation, and he has the royal feet to prove it. He is holy. There is none like him in heaven and on earth. It reflects his kingship, his power, his presence. And so we have this physical description, and look at the words of John, like, 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 Jesus has a human body, but when John beholds him, his glory is such that he cannot see but that which emanates from the glory of Christ. He beholds the glorified, resurrected Redeemer unfettered. It is a true description of Christ Jesus, but this is a description of him in his glorified, priestly, prophet, kingly state. And not only do we have a description of the way he looks, but also of his voice and of his mouth. John writes that his voice sounded like the sound of many waters. If you ever get the opportunity to go through western North Carolina and visit the many waterfalls, go do it. There's one in which you can walk under the waterfall as it goes over your head, or if you've ever had the opportunity to go to Niagara, this is what happens when you try to talk to someone while you're under the waterfall. It just... 
It puts everything on mute. It's like noise cancellation. The, the voice of Christ, it isn't just a single monotonous tone. It is this noise that fills the entire chamber in which John is standing. And that is all he hears. It denotes power, fullness, richness, transformation. Also, in the book of Ezekiel chapter 1, we read in verse 24, And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood, they let down their wings. Again, of the cherubim. And then Ezekiel 43, verse 2, And behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of His coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with His glory. And then Revelation 14, verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is a term of overwhelming noise. And not just noise, but melody, beauty, glory. It is the voice of Almighty God that resounds in everything that He creates. The cherubim vibrate with it. Everything that comes out of them is the same noise that Jesus says. And in Revelation 14, the 144,000 are the saints of God, and the voice or the noise that they make is the same noise that comes from the mouth of Christ. What does this mean? That the voice of Christ is one that not only gives revelation, but it is a voice that brings transformation, and it becomes our voice. You learn to sing in worship, and I don't just mean the tune. You learn to sing of the glory and the love of Christ as Christ has revealed it to you. Every noise you make that brings exalted glory to God, every principle, every truth you speak, every song you sing is first spoken by Christ. You merely speak after Him. You're a parrot. You hear it and you speak it back. This is the usefulness of even a catechism. Question, answer. Children, repeat after me. This is how everyone learns to sing. Yeah, you learn to sing. Not someone reading lyrics, someone singing lyrics. This is how we learn. We hear the voice of Christ speaking, singing, and we enter into that. If there's anything we do as a church, it ought to be singing, praying, hearing the word preached, taught, But we ought to be a singing people. Do you know why men stopped singing in church? It's not because it was uncool. It's because the songs that the church sings now are terrible. There's no glory in them. It's the same reason why men don't listen to top 40 radio for the most part. Because it's silly and trite and stupid. 
The thing that is, the voice, the, 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 the song that is coming forth from Christ's mouth is a song of victory and triumph. It is a song that has a sword at the heart of it. It is a war song. It is a song of conquest and of victory. Why are men screaming at football games but silent in church? It is because they have not been given something to root for anymore. And here Christ is there amidst the churches. And his voice is a mighty rushing wind of exalted orthodoxy. And it isn't cold. It isn't HTML. It isn't Java. It isn't C++. It isn't just computer language. It's beautiful language. Such that when you hear it, you are stirred by it. You are transformed by it. Because the word of Christ, his voice, has at the center of it a piercing, slicing edge. We hear the voice, John hears the voice, and we hear it with him, but we also see out of his mouth is this sword. And this sword is what? Well, it's what the Bible has already said. It is. Hebrews chapter 4, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You need only the sword to conquer the enemies of Christ and heal and nurture and edify the saints. It is this sword that Christ uses to raise up the church. And then later in chapter 2, verse 26, it is also associated with the rod, as, Paul, as John is writing to the church in Thyatira, chapter 2, verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule over them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. How does the church conquer the world? Through the sword that comes forth from the mouth of Christ Jesus. It's that simple. I don't need to elaborate anymore. It's the word. Which means every time you come to church, the one thing you should be looking forward to most is to hear the word of God read and preached. And it doesn't matter if the pastor is wielding it well, because the sword isn't located in the pastor's mouth, is it? It's located in Christ's mouth. He is the one who is speaking. Now, that does not mean I should make it difficult by obscuring the truth of God's word. For you, I need to be faithful. But the Lord wields powerfully that word that he has given to the church in every age, and what that word does is it brings about the effect that Christ has promised. Now let's look at the response of the apostle. That's my second point. John sees, he hears, and this is his response. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is all he could do. Now, I want to make a point, and then I want to nuance that point. 
This is not a response of worship as we often think of worship. This is a reflexive response of a creature when that creature is in the sight of his creator. John drops. It wasn't a self-conscious decision. It was all he could do. He went low. Think duck and cover. (laughs) Some of you who grew up in the duck and cover. Yeah, Yeah, there's a few. The boomer variety. Duck and cover because the heat's coming. And the safest place is to get low. Now John has some level of fear and awe because what, is we, what do we read in verse 17? Christ comes to him and says, fear not. And so here is the creaturely response. It isn't one of, all right, I am going to decide that when I am in the presence of Christ, I will conscientiously bow before him. No, at some point when Christ even returns at the second coming, every knee shall bow. Every one of those TikTok influencers that raise their fist in defiance of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, if they were to be recorded, will be on their faces on the ground and they can do nothing else. That's all they can do. And that is because that is what a creature made after the image of God and for God will do, whether they like it or not, when they behold His majesty. This is all we can do. But what happens next is very important. Christ comes to John, and with his hand, he touches John, this right hand of authority, of power and dominion, and he lays it upon John, and what does he say? Comfort. Fear not. Do not be afraid. This means nothing to us if you do not also understand what Christ also does with his right hand. First, it was pierced for our transgressions. But now in his ascended glory, it is by the right hand of Christ Jesus that he smites the nations. It is his, it is his means of rule, but he uses that hand, he places it upon John, and he says, get up, fear not, and write. Now, when we speak of a true saving faith, it is comprised of two things, repentance and faith. Conversion is repentance and faith. Now, what is repentance? Genuine repentance is marked by a genuine sorrow for our sins. We fall before Christ and we say, I am but a worm. I am but a worm. I am nothing. Woe unto me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And it is from that place of humiliation that Christ then comes to us, and he tells us, do not fear. Why? Why does he say this to John? Why would he say it to us? Because it is by that right hand that He causes us to be His children. He redeems us. Christ comforts us with His right hand. And not just that, 
in Isaiah chapter 49, of the servant of the Lord, who is Christ Jesus. This is what Jesus says, He, speaking of the Father, made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand He hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In His quiver He hid me away. The Father has sent the Son into the world. And Christ has, through His redeeming work, brought war against the ungodly and healing to His people. And it is by this same sword, His mouth, and the effect that it brings, that we are able to stand and serve and minister in His midst. And it is out of this place of comfort that John writes. Look at verse 19. Write. Write. Fear not, and then write. This sword that comes forth from the mouth of Christ is a sword of healing unto the nations. It is only Christ that can alleviate our humility and prostration before Almighty God. This is the problem with rapture theology. Rapture theology says this. There are two men standing in the field. One goes and the other stays. Rapture theology reverses the true meaning of that text. Rapture theology says what? You want to be the guy that's taken. That is not what the Scriptures are doing. The Scriptures are saying, no, 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 no. You want to be the one who can stand in the midst of Almighty God when His judgment comes. The chaff is that which gets blown away. It is only those who have received the confirming comfort of Christ Jesus who can stand in His presence and have no fear. Yesterday, our family went to a memorial service of Carl Brown, whom we were praying for, who had pancreatic cancer. I didn't know this about Carl Brown. He was a lay pastor for 21 years. had no idea. There's nothing like a pastor that doesn't tell you he's a pastor. There's something about that that I like. It's sneaky in a good way. (laughs) And at his funeral, they played a video of him speaking to the congregation, of which he was an associate pastor for 21 years. He also was a diesel mechanic. And he said, I'm ready. He said, I have no fear. And I thought, whoa, that's a little... Tough to swallow. I'm a little afraid. Now, I may have better reasons for that. His only child was grown. He's a grown man. He's my age, and they, uh, Carl has six grandchildren. And so, you know, there's maybe some different circumstances there, but I believed him when he said, I'm unafraid. And here's one of the reasons, I think. Number one, We know who awaits us in the world that is to come. And we know what He will say of us when we see Him. Because He's already said it. And He doesn't change His mind. And He doesn't talk out of one side of His mouth and then say something out of the other side. When Christ says, do not fear, He means it. It isn't euphemism. It's exhortation. 
And he says to John, you have no reason to fear. John has every reason to fear except one. Christ has picked him up in his incarnation and in his sacrifice upon the cross. So that in Christ Jesus, John, who stands before the exalted Lord, can stand before him and serve as a minister wielded in Christ's hand to expand the kingdom. And this is why Christ says, do not fear. It's tied to the explanation, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, Hades here does not mean Gehenna, which is the eternal lake of fire, which comes later in the book of Revelation, where all the lost souls whose bodies are resurrected and joined with their eternal souls will be cast into the lake of fire forever. Hades is that place where Jesus went to minister after his death, before his resurrection, those enslaved. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. Those who were enslaved even in Noah's day. What Jesus is saying himself is this. Because I was raised in this world, I am king of this world. And because I defeated death and hell, I am king of death and hell. Christ isn't just king of heaven and earth. He is king of the grave. You keep what you kill. Jesus is saying to John, I can say fear not, because the one thing that you can fear, I've taken care of that. 1 Corinthians 15, right? He has removed the sting of death. And so what are we to do? Well, we are to fix our gaze upon the Redeemer as John did. We are to think of ourselves as worthy of condemnation, worthy of fear, but through Christ, redeemed. So what's the takeaway from such a text like this, that Christ is present with His people in glory and in power? And though Christ is a humble servant, He is not a present humble servant. He was and is no longer. Christ, though, can do two things. He can be the transcendent Lord of heaven and earth and then come to you with His hand and touch you and say to you, comfort. He doesn't have to be a wimp to do that. In fact, it is because He is not a wimp that He can do that. This is the vision that we are to have of Christ when we think of Him as Redeemer. Christ in His power says, do not fear. And so when you go in and out of the Lord's sanctuary, this is the vision that you ought to keep in mind. This is the fellowship that we have. Christ Jesus in our midst, that you need to know what your King, as far as He has relayed to you, looks like. This is who He is, and this is what He does. And not only that, but we also see, lastly, the revelation of Christ's intentions. Now we see, verse 12, verse 13, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around His chest. This is a picture of Christ dressed as a priest. Why priest? Well, we speak of the three offices of Christ. And it's worth knowing what these are and how Christ fulfills those roles as prophet, priest, and king. They are foretold in the Old Testament. 
No one was ever all three. Sometimes they were two. Samuel was a priest and a prophet. David was a king. But he was not allowed to build the temple. Why? Because he was a man of war. And there are others. But it is Christ that combines these three offices. And in this off, these three offices, he fulfills his role as redeemer. In his humiliation, Christ is priest in what way? Hebrews says, as a sacrifice once offered for sins. As a prophet, he spoke the very words of God. He is the eternal Logos. And as king, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is king. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. Christ did not cease to minister in those offices after his humiliation, but in those offices still continues to minister in his exalted state. In this way, as priest, he intercedes for us according to the worthiness of his once and for all offering of himself. As prophet, right now, by his spirit, he's speaking to you with this mouth and with that sword. And as king, this is the easy one. He is subduing all of his and our enemies. How is he doing this? Well, we see the implements by which he wields his glory as prophet, priest, and king. First, he says, I have the keys of death in Hades. He owns it all. No one else has these keys. I don't have them. Satan does not have them. Only Christ has them. And so he says what? Write, therefore, verse 19, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place. As for you, he's going back then to the vision of the stars that are in Christ's hand, that you saw in my right hand the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, angels here does not mean a celestial being. It is the pastors, the ministers of the churches, who are sent to those seven churches to proclaim the word. The sword is not in their mouths. They are in the hand of Christ. And Christ takes his ministers and he wields them, he calls them, he uses them to do what? To fill the churches with his life-giving word and presence. And so he stands, he walks, he speaks, and he wields as an animate, active, sovereign Lord. He rules in strength and power and wisdom. He stands with and walks among his bride, and he calls and he holds his ministers in his hand that they may, by the sword that comes from his mouth, his word, bring about the fulfillment of his purposes among the churches. And you have seen it happen. It doesn't matter who the star is. It matters that the sword comes forth from the mouth of Christ. Now, it matters that there are stars. And I'm not like a star, like, you know, the Hollywood stars. That's not what this is. I'm a, I'm someone, I'm a celebrity here at Reformation OPC. And if all of you were to like me on Instagram, I would still only have 70-something or 50-something followers, depending on how you count. That's still pretty pathetic. <laughs> you don't get free stuff until you get like 20,000 followers. 
You're not an influencer. Pastors aren't influencers, are they? They are tools that the, in, the Redeemer wields. Christ is the... Inf- I can't even say that. Christ rules and reigns by his word. And he accomplishes his mission with power because it is the sword that comes forth from his mouth. What also do we learn? There are many in the Western modern church that say truth is not what the world needs. What the world needs is compassion. But compassion without truth is meaningless. In fact, in order for Christ to say, fear not, which is compassion, he says it with a mouth out of which a sword is coming. He doesn't say, hold on, let me put my sword away for a minute. Empathy. No, what does he do? With that same mouth, it is the sword that brings the call to fear not. Truth, orthodoxy, is life-giving, it is soul-comforting, it is the rod that Christ also uses to rule over and break the nations. There is no such thing as dead orthodoxy. There may be dead speakers of orthodoxy, but there is no such thing as dead orthodoxy. If it is truth, it is powerful. It's sword The nations don't have a sword. Christ alone has the sword. Your pastors do not have the sword if they do not speak for Christ. And they do not speak for Christ if they do not speak Christ. What does this mean? As the church goes out and wars against the nations, it may seem as though they have weapons that are more powerful than the word. But they are the one whose arms are tied behind their backs. And they have no power, and they have no strength, and they have no wisdom because they don't have a single weapon that can be waged against the one who has the sword. So what does Christ's glory and power bring? It brings teaching, reproof, correcting, training in righteousness. It brings what Christ has promised it would bring, and that is the bringing in of the nations. And this is what we need to see. This is the preface to the letters that John then writes to the churches. If you don't know this, then these letters will not mean anything. They will lose their glory, their power. The context of them will be lost if you do not see the author, the true author of these letters. And so this is why chapter 1 is so important. Because we need to see the one who speaks. And we need to know that what he says has power and glory. So that when we are encouraged, we receive it as true encouragement. When we are called to repent, we say, Okay, yes sir, we will do it. Whatever you say, you have the sword. You tell us what to do. And in that regard, as we learn and continue to move through the book of Revelation, what will happen to us is not only that we get to figure out these kind of interesting mysteries that we can talk about at a dinner dinner party. That's not why we're here. We're not learning glossary of terms. 
What we're learning is there is a Christ who sits upon the throne and we have no reason to fear, no reason to feel shame, no reason to wonder whether or not the church will be victorious, but Christ is victorious and through Him we too as well. Let's pray. 